Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and of course, kicking off today's program with uh, the news that we don't ever want to have to share. But of course, if you've been paying attention to what's been happening in the headlines over the weekend, the uh, Hamas attacks on Israel, the number of uh, the thousands of people who've been killed, uh, many more have been wounded, and the uh, just the nature of the attacks, who's responsible, who's behind it. But we're still sorting through the rubble and trying to figure things out. But whenever there's anything that has to do with Israel, first and foremost, I always think of Leila Gilbert. I reached out to her over the weekend. Uh, she's the uh, Senior Fellow for International Religious Liberty at uh, uh, the Family Research Council. She's a well-known author, an expert in Christ Christian persecution, anti-Semitism, and international religious freedom. LeelaGilbert.com is where you find all of her writings, and she's been spending the past 48 hours just pouring over all the information that she can get. So she's going to give us her best update as well as to uh, what's been going on in Israel. Leela Gilbert, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad you're here, too. And one of these days, we're going to have a happy conversation about wonderful topics. I promise you. I really do. I'm not going <laughs> to. You're not going to get that cra crazy text on a Saturday night from me going, hey, it's been a while. But uh, hey, can we first and foremost, your initial reaction for people who don't know, Leela is an American born author. She lived for Israel was it for a, de a full decade. You lived in Israel. Yeah, a little more. Yeah, a little more than a decade. And I just I just got back from a trip there in August, at late August. So this, I've, I've been there very recently as well. What, what was the mood like when you were there back this summer? Well, it was uh, very torn up because there are a lot of demonstrations pro uh, Netanyahu, anti, you know, all of this uproar over something called judicial reform, which uh, I'm not even sure I can explain it, certainly not in a quick conversation. But, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just been really a lot of uproar. It looks to me like there's been a lot of, of effort made to up, to upset the, the peace of mind there already. I don't know right. if it's related to this attack or not, but it just felt unstable then. And mm -hmm. then this happened. What happened, and if you had not heard the specifics, but basically Hamas launched an attack on Israel. Um, Israel does have the Iron Dome, which was able to intercept quite a bit of it, but there was a major amounts of collateral damage done. And of course, then Israel has responded with retaliation, Prime Minister Netanyahu declaring we are at war. And that's not anything you want to hear. I mean, it's something he would not enter into lightly, Lila Gilbert. Is that correct? I mean, this is not an overstatement on Benjamin Netanyahu's part. When he said we are at war, he meant that's how bad the scale of the attack was. Oh, yeah. I think this is a whole different ballgame. This has happened. You know, there have been these uh, random attacks with, with rockets out of Hamas, out of Gaza for years. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's always been a retaliation and then it, the dust settles and there's really nothing that comes of it. And so this is very different to say that. And I, my impression from reading reports and everything else is that Israel plans to go in there and just take out and has been taking out central areas where these uh, terrorist groups are, are organized. A couple of them, I noticed, were in mosques, and I guess they took out the mosques and whoever was in them. So it's, no, it's going to be a real house cleaning. And I think all the talk about making peace and trying to find, you know, some sort of balance, I think that's over. And yeah. it's a real, you know, it's a warning to us all about trying to reason with terrorists. It's, mm -hmm. it, they don't operate on the same level as we do at all, morally yeah. or any other way. So 
I think it's yeah. a big flashing red light in other areas of the world as well as, as this terrible attack. Lily Gilbert is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom at Family Research Council, among other titles that she holds. Uh, LilyGilbert.com is where she writes and blogs and, and posts, and she's also an author who under, gives us a very um, a, a, an American view of what's happening in Israel, understanding, of course, that you've got Christian, Jew, and Muslim in the, that region there, and then, of course, the, the wandering Palestinians who wind up being bankrolled by terrorists, and half of America doesn't understand that. They just see Palestinians looking for a homeland. And so why is Israel being so mean and bullying? But you mentioned this is kind of a whole different level. I mean, this is what, what's happening here. We, we've, you and I've had conversations about, hey, there was a, uh, you know, some armory coming in through Syria and is, Israeli forces took it out, you know, or something like that. And then the New York Times says Israel attacks Syria. You know, that's kind of the condensed right. version of how we get reported in the Western media. This is different, though, because of the scale, but also the fact, too, that it seemed like U.S. intelligence didn't see this coming. Israeli intelligence didn't see this coming. Talk about that aspect of it, Leela, if you would. Well, that's the big puzzle, and it's very distressing because it's just completely out of character. Uh, Israel is known as having the most, you know, go, like you said before, gold standard of, of intelligence uh, capacity and success. And for this to get by them in advance, and this wasn't just rockets. This was an invasion across the border. The border fence was destroyed by drones. It was very sophisticated, very well organized, and not cheaply done. It, it was well funded. Um, there was a, a transfer of, uh, what, $6 billion that was going to go to Iran soon. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Iran is a supporter of Hamas. And so there's right. some talk about whether the promise of that money, which hasn't cleared yet, but uh, the fact that it was coming, you know, made this all the more accessible for the enemy. So yeah. uh, there's a lot more to it than the usual, uh, you know, going in. Maybe there's a little raid, but this is a major raid. They were slaughtering people in their homes. We we don't even know the death toll yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when we when we see the death toll, even uh, an organization like the New York Times had to admit this morning they they listed the death toll as of eight o'clock this morning Eastern at somewhere around twelve hundred. They tried to make it look like it was pretty much an even smattering, but obviously there are far more Israelis who've been killed than than Palestinians, and and the Palestinians to the Iranians are collateral damage. Unfortunately, I mean that's just that that's how they get get the work done and then did i see that qatar is kind of working as kind of a de facto uh negotiating tool and i'm like wait isn't all the funding coming through qatar i mean it just seems like they're <laughs> yeah. i i mean i don't want to i don't want to downplay this but it does kind of seem like more in t rat and american tail you know where it's like he's trying to work both ends of it instead of uh you know saying there's a good guy there's a bad guy um how, had, how has the U.S. response been, in your opinion, Leela Gilbert? We know what the U.S. response has been. Donald Trump has spoken. Joe Biden has spoken. But how diplomatically have the U.S. stood in the gap and showed their support for Israel or maybe not as much support as you would like them to support? Well, I haven't really seen that much written about that. I, I think that all of the horrified uh, quotes have been, as you said, they've all been published but what went on behind the scenes and has continued to, you know, we just watched uh, about 100,000 Armenian Christians get driven out of their little enclave near, near Armenia, but not in Armenia officially, by a radical Muslim country, uh, mm. Azerbaijan. 
you know, this isn't just isolated. This is a, a mentality toward Christians, toward Jews, that is not just isolated to this. But, of course, Israel is, is the center of the hatred. And so the, the, the hatefulness and the desire to kill inside Israel is great, greatly magnified. And, of course, they're calling this Israel's 9-11. And I think that's fair. And I, I think it's, you know, it, it is very similar. It's the biggest wake-up call ever, and that's what it was here. And it's what introduced us to the radicals and what they really mean. And I think the same thing, not that they don't know that there, but that it hadn't hit quite this way and with such vulnerability. Yeah, I'm talking with Lily Gilbert today here on The Bottom Line, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom with the Family Research Council and a longtime personal friend and our American eyes and ears in Israel, uh, telling us about what she just described as this 9-11 attack uh, having the same impact as 9-11 did here in the States. 22 years later, there was a 9-11 of sorts happening in Israel and uh, the thousands of people dead. And then, of course, those who have been kidnapped, who've been taken hostage, um, the 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 attack in the air and on the ground has just been so devastating. Uh, we've got a link for Leela's site up at thebottomlineshow.com so you can follow along with the things that she's writing about this. We'll take a quick break and when we come back, more of our conversation with Leela Gilbert, what in the world is happening in Israel? We'll talk more about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Leela Gilbert is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom at the Family Research Council, among others. Leela's business card would have to be five feet tall to get all the different titles she has in, fellow at the Hudson Institute, author, journalist, uh, just a, a, a great voice for uh, showing us in the body of Christ here in America what's happening around the world, and especially in, in the Middle East, having lived in Israel for over a decade and, uh, and having just gotten back from a trip from Israel back this past August. We're talking about the horrific attacks over the weekend, Hamas savagely attacking Israel. And as Leela mentioned, this is kind of a 9-11 type attack in Israel. If you want to kind of put this in perspective, the fact that it was an air attack, the iron drone did its thing to take out the missiles, but then it was the ground attack going after fences and 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 and, and the fact that, uh, that so many innocent people, including women and children, have been taken captive. And Leela, a couple of years ago, when the U.S. decided to unilaterally and very suddenly pull out of Afghanistan, and leave millions of dollars in equipment and cash and, and literally people behind. And uh, the administration was questioned as to why do so. And they made up some rather lame excuse and there was rather heroic efforts to get people out. But then we saw what happened to Afghanistan and in particular, the women and children who were left behind. Here we are a couple of years later and we're seeing the same type of thing happening in Israel right now. Can you give us a help us understand how bad it is? I mean, so we look at the hostage pictures and most of the hostages that I've seen are either women or children. Oh, that's right. And I think that we have to understand that these radicalized Islamist groups, and this certainly doesn't apply to all Muslims by any stretch, but those that are radicalized in this ideology have a whole different view of women than anybody else in the world, I think. Mm -hmm. And these young girls, there's been a tremendous amount of rape and exploitation of torture of women in Gaza. It's been photographed. I've seen the photographs. Also, mm. the kidnapping of little children. And I, I think the women are, they're, they're just seen as, as sort of some sort of pawns in, in the game of life. 
And it was particularly evident in some of the video and some of the photos I saw in recent days. I don't think they're going to be widely seen. I saw them on social media. Some of them were taken down later, but they, they were clearly what they were clearly women that had been sexually abused. They had bled. They, they were some dead, some were alive and being taken in as captives into Gaza. So it's, it's, it's targeting the weakest, you know, physically weakest people, and that's little children, little toddlers, and mm. women. It's just, it's, it's so sad to see that happening, and yet you have to wonder, okay, what is the United States going to do? You mentioned earlier, and I'm glad you brought this point up for those who are just tuning in uh, to my conversation with Leela Gilbert. It is true that the United States did a prisoner swap a week or so ago, and in doing so, I don't know that it was the uh, pallets of cash that we had during two administrations ago, but there were $6 billion of assets, the way I understand it, that had been frozen by the United States that were uh, Iranian uh, territory, I guess, that are going to be unfrozen, and, and they, they're probably not directly being used for this purpose. And yet at the same time, Leela, as you mentioned, well, if you have the opportunity and you've got $6 billion that you know eventually, then you could, there's a fungibility part where you could say, okay, well, we'll spend $6 billion over here knowing we're going to get $6 billion over there. So it kind of does tie the U.S. to this directly. And yet President Biden called President Net, Prime Minister Netanyahu and said, we're with you, we support you. Um, what does the U.S. need to do now and what can the church do now? We'll do a, the, kind of a two-part question. What, what kind of U.S. response would you be looking for? Because as you mentioned, the whole world rallied around the U.S. after 9-11. If this is Israel's 9-11, what would you expect President Biden and his team to do? Well, I'd expect them to say all the right things publicly. I think mm -hmm. what they do behind the scenes is a whole different story and what kind of stuff goes on underhandedly and we we just had the guy that was our ambassador um, Mali that was in Iran and heavily involved with Iran as a representative of the U.S. and so forth and he just got busted he got kicked out I mean brought out of Iran by us and he's been investigated for having been involved in spying and everything else mm. we have not been minding the store over there and they, everybody thinks in the left, I guess America's left or the Democrats, whatever you want to call them, they think they can reason with people that don't have the same value system as we do and that they right. can just make nice and give some money. And we know I just finished writing a book about the Christians in Iran. It's waiting. To, it's at a publisher being examined whether they want to publish it. Somebody will. Mm -hmm. But what goes on there? <laughs> behind the scenes to Christians and certainly women who are arrested. Again, there's another example of the abuses that these Christian women have gotten out of prison. They, some of them have come here. We know what happened to them in prison there. We know what happened to the women in Afghanistan, and this is the same thing. And Iran has never been taken, at least in Democrat uh, administrations, taken seriously as a very dangerous country that is funding a lot of these radical Islamist groups that do terror in various places. Mm -hmm. And we need to, I mean, if, what will we need to do and what will happen are two different things. But my view is it needs to be looked at 
very differently than it has been in the past, especially by this administration. Leila Gilbert is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom with the Family Research Council. LeelaGilbert.com is where you find her online. Leela, you were talking about the president and other world leaders, but especially from the United States, saying all the right things in public. And uh, so far, that seems to have happened, which is, is good, unlike uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who got into some trouble on on X, Twitter, whatever they call that thing these days, about trying to make it a, uh, that, I guess that was her very fine people on both sides moment. And uh, maybe that messes up her <laughs> run for the White House in 24. I don't know. I, I don't know. But now with the church, it gets a little dicier because we know in the Middle East, there is that oppression, they, that the operation, you know, Iraqi freedom, shock and awe and everything that was good for U.S. diplomacy for a season was actually very challenging for the church. And you know what it's like to be a Christian in that area. Leela. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir on this one, but there's that other component that oftentimes people who are in the BDS crowd will often bring up and they're saying, well, what about the Palestinian Christians? You know, what, what about the, the people who are in this region right now who are saying, we just want to exist. We just want a holy land of our own. What, what can we as the church do to not fall into that uh, you know, I'm in this column, I'm in that column. They wind up being gutters at some point and we just can't get out of them. Well, I think one of the things we have to look at is what happened to the Christians in the countries outside of Israel. Things, yes, things, there are small incidents in Israel from time to time, but there are almost no Christians left in Iraq. They are, they've had to leave. They just can't live there. They can't survive. And if you look around at Yemen, if you look around at some of the other countries surrounding uh, Israel and in in that same region, uh, the Christians are just struggling to stay there. I, there are stories of conversions, and if they are true, they're underground, and we won't know. And that's the case in Iran. There is a huge underground Christian movement, but it's not the evangelicals that we know about. It's a completely different different group. It's it's converts from Islam. So we have to pray for them, yes, but we also have to not pretend that Christians are, you know, going to have freedom in any part of the Middle East, because they are not, as long as there are Islamist or uh, uh, administrations or leadership or even groups that are able to attack them and, and you know, drive them out. Hmm. You know, I, I think about what we're looking at right now as a nation, what we in the body of Christ are, are looking at. And Leela, I know this is, it's personal for you. We haven't gotten into too many of the, the personal aspects of you just because you have friends there. You uh, had a really good life there and you go back and visit. I mean, it's not like just because you are living in the East Coast now of the United States doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, throw all that other uh, connection away. In our final moment here, 90 seconds or so that we have here, um, talk about why this is the kind of thing that we as Christians have a tendency to say, wow, that's bad news. And boy, we're praying for Israel. Let's all get our, you know, Israeli flags up on social media and uh, post Psalm 122 or whatever it is that we, you know, we talk about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But why now in the culture is this, it, it seems like this is a turning point. I mean, not to mean that this signals the beginning of the end times, but this does seem like a huge departure from what we've seen in the past. Is that accurate? Well, it's certainly the worst assault on Israel that I'm aware of in my lifetime, other than wars that took place. This is the worst in invasion and unexpected invasion that I know anything about, and certainly the most casualties. But yes, I think we have to look at 
you know, if you want to get into how dark it's getting, you have to look at Turkey, you have to look at Azerbaijan, opposing those tens of thousands of Christians. Everywhere you look in that region, and in much, much of the world, I mean, China, you know, it's not an easy place to be a Christian there either. Right, it's right. a dark time. And we, we do have to, I don't I don't know about it. It's been in time since I was born, and you know, according to somebody. <laughs> so I don't know what to say about that. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just, I believe it's getting darker. I don't quite doubt that for a minute. It's never been as bad in the whole planet as yeah. it is right now. But, you know, what comes of that and how things unfold, I don't know. But we we must pray for our brothers and sisters and, and be aware politically not to be fooled by diplom- diplo-speak or whatever you call it, mm, because these are, these are very, these are very dangerous people that are running some very large countries with a lot of money and a lot of arms. And our Christians and Jews are going to be the ones that take the heat. Wise words of counsel from Leela Gilbert, uh, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom with Family Research Council. Can't wait to see your new book. And if you're one of our publisher friends who's listening, publish this thing. Don't wait. Don't hold this thing up. Leela does great work, and this will be a, a, a tremendous resource for the body of Christ, if not the world. You'll find her at leelagilbert.com. We've got that posted perennially. Leela, thank you for taking time with us today. I know this has been a, an excruciating day and weekend for you, but we're really grateful that uh, you had a half hour or so for for us just to, to visit, get caught up, and, and uh, give our listeners an update as to what's going on in this very tenuous time that we're living in right now. Thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you so much for inviting me. Always appreciate these conversations with Leela Gilbert. And today here on The Bottom Line, she's given us some great food for thought with regard to what's happening in the Middle East and uh, why it's important for us to pay attention to that uh, same information. Uh, you can find Leela's writings at leelagilbert.com, L-E-L-A, gilbert.com. And also you can check her out at the Family Research Council, uh, Family Research, uh, excuse me, FRC Family Research Center, uh, where she's the Senior Fellow for International uh, Religious uh, Foundation and Formation. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, some final thoughts about what's happening and what we in the body of Christ can do to be more effective to reaching out to our friends in Israel and to people around the world who need the gospel. Some statistics to share coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. 
My thanks again to Leela Gilbert, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom at uh, the Family Research Council. And uh, we've got a link for FRC site up at thebottomlineshow.com. If you didn't, if you're just tuning in now, I realize people listen on terrestrial radio live in real time. And if you're just tuning in, please go back to thebottomlineshow.com or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get us, tune in, Stitcher, and listen to this dialogue about what's going on and Leela's thoughts after as an American Christian woman living in Israel for over a decade, uh, knowing the people, knowing the customs, knowing the culture, and knowing what is behind these attacks. It's, it's a very, very important for us to, to understand that. I uh, want to thank a couple of people here. Mike, uh, who wrote in from San Diego, uh, called in from San Diego, and also uh, Javarius, who called in from Santa Ana, both with $28 donations to Preborn. Uh, when you think of the children that are being killed in Israel right now. And you think of the children who are murdered every day senselessly because of abortion in this country. Our friends at Preborn are doing the heavy lifting, providing ultrasounds for free to women and uh, babies who come into their clinics. And uh, a $28 donation makes it possible for one of these lives to, uh, to continue to keep going and the heart to keep beating. Uh, 833-850-BABY is the number to call. We still have a matching gift in place, a $15,000 match courtesy of an anonymous K-Bride donor uh, who wants to see us get two uh, ultrasound machines into clinics right here in Orange County. 833-850-BABY, so those two $28 donations that have come through today are now counting as double because of that matching gift. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-2229, or go to kbrightradio.com and click on the preborn banner today. I mentioned the statistics. I just want to share again as we wrap up this half hour. 90% of the people who live in Israel apparently are atheists. When we think about the Lord's return, listen to a great message from Tony Evans yesterday uh, talking about how important Jerusalem is because that's where Jesus comes back to rule and reign for a thousand years. And understanding that uh, the good news of the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And for those of us Gentiles who have received it, let us never give up being in prayer for our Jewish brothers and sisters who need to understand and hear that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus Christ. And he offers forgiveness of sin. And uh, when we see the craziness happening in the world right now, we know that he is our Savior and our Lord. Not everybody who calls Jesus Lord is going to heaven. And not everybody who uh, that you think is a Bible-believing Christian really is. But for such a time as this, we need to be more prayerful and certainly let our light so shine before others that they would see our good works but then glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's the good news and that's the bottom line. On the other side of this break, critical race theory under fire what does that mean for us in the body of Christ? A couple of uh, collegiate experts are going to give us their uh, deeply insightful and thoughtful opinion about critical race theory. The book called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. The authors of this book, Dr. Neil, Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer, are going to join me next as the bottom line continues. Uh, today here on the bottom line show we're going to take a christian perspective on both of these things um and there's a brand new book out that actually helps us accomplish this task the book is called critical dilemma the rise of critical theories and social justice ideologies implications for the church and society we have a link for the book up at the bottom the book is written uh, co-authored by uh 
uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer, who joined us here. And if you're watching on MyHopeNow.com, we have all, uh, both guys here and uh, looking very dapper, though I understand that Neil's older than Pat. Or Wait, did I get that right, guys? Uh, welcome to the Bottom Line yeah. Show, either way. Glad to have you here. I'm very young compared to Pat. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's an old man. Tell you. That's well, right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Neil is the author of the book, Why Believe? A Reformed, a Reasoned Approach, rather, to Christianity. Uh, Pat Sawyer has a his undergraduate degree in psychology, uh, master's in communication studies, and a PhD in educational and cultural studies, and is a faculty member of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Okay, guys, this is a huge topic to get into, and there's probably more misinformation than good information on here. So first and foremost, when you talk about critical theory or social justice movement, that type of thing in this resource, how specifically do we define those? So in the book, we're very careful about defining our terms and giving the readers a real broad, complete, detailed understanding of the ideas at the heart of the social justice movement today. So we, in chapter three, we go back to Karl Marx, to the Frankfurt School, the 1920s and 30s. They define the term critical theory. They coined it. We trace its evolution through the last 80 years through disciplines like post-colonial theory, feminism, critical race theory, queer theory. And where we land today is a set of ideas that we call contemporary critical theory, which is at the heart of the popular social justice movement. And one of the things we do in the book is we really want to stay close to the primary sources. So we have something like 770 footnotes, more than that. We cite hundreds of authors from primary sources who are describing these ideas. Now, the, the book does, is not this really hard to understand academic volume. It's, it's accessible. Like My 14-year-old son has read parts of it and could read it and enjoy it. Uh, but we do want to avoid creating a straw man. So right. when it comes to critical theory, I, we define it in terms of four main ideas, the social binary hegemonic power, lived experience, and social justice. What mm -hmm. are those briefly? The social binary says that society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, religion, and a host of other identity markers. So you have whites and men and heterosexuals and Christians oppressing people of color and women and LGBTQ people and non-Christians. This is what critical theory, this is your understanding of critical theory. This, this is, is what they believe. Yeah. This is what they believe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Was, to be clear, we don't support these ideas, but we describe right. them in the book. very. Carefully. No, I, and I think it, it's great, Neil. I thank you for, for sharing that because I think that that part of the biggest problem that I see just as kind of a culture watcher, we're in our 13th year of doing the bottom line show is just noticing how easy it is to lead people astray with one or two rather compelling texts or tweets mm -hmm. or whatever it is and that that sound so either horrific or too good to be true you know you, you tell people black lives matter and they say well of course they do but then yeah. you look at the organization and you see the marxist underpinnings and and that becomes problematic as you began to you know take this on uh pat you could pat maybe you could uh, go ahead and deal with this next part of it which is uh it's the it's bigger than an 800 pound gorilla. Where do you start digging in? Where do you start? I mean, how do you help take the the, the reader not only from understanding where the, the basis is and the underpinnings of it, but then, okay, well, you've got a section. How did we get here? I mean, how did you just settle on three <laughs> different places, you know, where there could have been a lot more, I'm sure, that you could have used as examples? Well, we, it's interesting. We do try to provide, Roger, a concise kind of history 
in terms of critical social theory. Karl Marx was really the first critical theorist, and the Frankfurt School is an amendment and an expansion of Marxism. So the Frankfurt School being in Frankfurt, Germany in the 1920s, that institute was really where critical theory was birthed. And then critical social theory, where we are today, is an expansion and an amendment to critical theory, historic critical theory. And what we do in the book is, as Neil has mentioned, the way we help readers get their minds wrapped around it, we do draw from four main ideas that are part of critical social theory. And that's not, we're not saying that that's all there is to critical social theory, but we draw on four main ideas, the social binary, hegemonic, and uh, a dominant uh, perspective, and then also lived experience and the social justice. And we help the reader uh, coalesce ideas connected to those four broad categories. And we chose those categories, again, not because this is in totality what critical social theory talks about, but we chose those ideas because those ideas are having the most impact on our larger society and also the church. And so we kind of hold the hand of the reader walking through some history. We talk about uh, certain theorists that are germane to certain critical social theories, for instance. And then we lead the reader down a path staying very close to the scholarship. Again, the first several chapters are nothing but explication. The mm -hmm. scholars in these knowledge areas speaking about what these topics are. And we don't just stack references. We block quote. We give context. We let these scholars speak for themselves. And so the way we set it up, this should be a, a good way for the reader to get their mind wrapped around this, you know, elephant, so to speak, mm -hmm. that has permeated our culture with all different kinds of words and phrases and, and how do you ever navigate and where to begin. And we we walk the reader through those things. And, and we've gotten some very good responses, Roger, that even though some of the content has an academic quality to it and has to, a lot of people are finding it accessible. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's great to hear. It's great to know that A is available and B, it is accessible once you do get a hold of it and you can actually start processing this. Uh, Dr. Neil Shenby, Dr. Pat Sawyer, my guest today here on the bottom line. The book is called Critical Dilemma. The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideologies, Implications for the Church and Society. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I wouldn't necessarily recommend, guys, that this becomes a Bible study or a book of the month type of reading. I mean, it's, it seems a bit more academic than that. And yet, I'm sure there are parts of this. I mean, when you, as you've been describing those four categories... The uh, the the you know hearing the stories you know understanding I love the way that you uh, you know break the book down uh, simplest simplistically but not easily because there's so much to cover uh, from understanding into critiquing into engaging uh, give us some good first steps to take in terms of saying I'm going to just stop take a deep breath and maybe it's just as simple as hearing somebody's story or reading what you guys are writing about in terms of that whole, how did we get here part? And that's for, for both of you. What are some good ways for us to begin to use a resource like this? I think, yeah, chapter two, we talk about how we got to this place where these critical social theories are so prevalent in the culture and even in the church. And we go through the history of slavery and Jim Crow and the Black Codes in the US. And then later in chapter seven, we talk about present day racial discrimination and talk about how all of those real problems, real social problems, we'd all admit, uh, they shape people's intuition, they shape their experiences, and they leave people looking for solutions. 
And critical race theory in particular has stepped into that void uh, and said, we have solutions. We can accurately describe the problem and find and, and, and show you how to achieve racial justice. So I think for Christians to understand these theories, maybe a good place to start is understanding the real problems, the real problems that have led people to embrace these dangerous and wrong solutions. So to start there, and you can, you know, there's lots of books out there, just good books on the history of, say, slavery and Jim Crow, um, memoirs for, from people of color talking about their own experiences, just to read them and say, okay, this is their perspective. I don't have to agree with everything they say, but I understand why they feel the way they do. And then from there, then you say, okay, now that I understand where they're coming from, how would I critique their uh, solution that they're offering? It's good wisdom uh, to think about with the situation where we are today in the culture. And I know there are a lot of pastors that are scrambling and doing one of two things. Either they're diving headfirst into this based on what they're seeing in the culture, maybe not having the frame of reference that they really need, or they're kind of running from it and saying, Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's all I need to preach, and I there, everything else is going to take care of itself. And I appreciate you both uh, engaging us and encouraging us to step into this conversation. Dr. Pat Sawyer, Dr. Neil Shenby, my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Their brand new book is called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Special edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh and very grateful that we have Dr. Pat Sawyer and Dr. Neil Shenvey with us today here on the program. They are the co-authors of a brand new book that is, I believe, required reading for the church. And if the book itself is not too daunting for you, there's also a discussion guide that goes along with it. The book is called Critical Dilemma. If you've been hearing a lot about critical race theory and queer theory and gender ideology and social justice and people talking about the Marxist implications of all those things, this book kind of helps us understand well, the subtitle is perfect, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, gentlemen, during the break, we were talking about one of the more shocking aspects of this story, especially for older folks like me. I'm I'm just amazed at the how the Obergefell decision, which was the big push, you know, 10, 12 years ago, are we going to legalize same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage in this culture, now has become just, it's like the floodgates open with the transgenderism and everything that's going on here. And you address the uh, uh, the, the the queer theories that are that are happening here, and, uh, you know, that, that maybe even more so of having an impact on the culture than the critical race theory that has people up in arms. Uh, I'll ask this to both of you guys. What exactly is queer theory and how prevalent is it? in the culture today? Well, queer theory is the application, essentially, of critical social theory to sexuality. And so critical theory is about power. It's, it's trying to understand how power is manifested in society. And queer theory is making the case that those who are part of the gay community have been disenfranchised and marginalized. And so the campaign of critical social theory that's concerned about power challenging hegemonic dominant power, and then also offering emancipation and freedom to those that queer theory and critical social theory believes are outside of power. That's part of the campaign, that emancipation, that empowerment. And so queer theory is interested in giving power to the LGBTQIA plus community. And so queer theory, it runs counter to the Christian faith in some very significant ways. Obviously, 
it promotes homosexuality, it promotes asexual ethics, it promotes transgenderism, it promotes a sexuality in a way that runs counter to the Bible's sexual ethics. And so that's where we see an immediate push. And then queer theory will go even further and discuss uh, things like heteronormativity, the notion of heterosexuality being normative, and queer theory positions that as a type of oppression. Hmm. And the Bible would indicate that heteronormativity and heterosexuality is a is a social good. Yeah. And so there's some uh, some big contrast there in terms of the Christian faith and uh, queer theory. And I'll just say quickly that queer theory is moving forward in terms of supplanting perhaps even critical race theory in terms of its impact in the, the church. We see more and more churches that are gay affirming mm -hmm. in how they're contextualizing themselves, even churches that claim evangelical uh, credibility. And so this is a, an important concern in our book addresses it head on. One of the things to say also is that oh, we, we talk about this academic origin of these theories like critical race theory and queer theory, but we also give many examples of how these scholarly theories are impacting everyday life and culture. For example, a big horrific example of queer theory being injected into popular discourse. In 2021, the television cartoon show Blue's Clues, which is aimed at preschool age kids, had a sing-along featuring a drag queen. And the lyrics to the tune hmm. said things like, these babas are non-binary. They love each other so proudly. Ace, oh bi, and pan grown-ups, you see, love each other so proudly. And so referring to asexual, bisexual, and transsexual grown-ups. And one of the cartoon beavers had double mastectomy star, scars showing that mm. it was a, a, a female beaver that had her breasts removed. It was in the cartoon. This is for kids learning their colors and numbers mm -hmm. and letters. Mm -hmm. And this is so, and throughout the book, we give these examples of quote-unquote wokeness all over the culture at, at major corporations, in schools, in churches, in Christian books published by evangelical publishers. Incredible. And say it's not just purely abstract. You're seeing this in real time on the ground. And here's how to understand these ideas and here's how to oppose them. I think it's, it's important, Roger, to also mention that in our address of queer theory, we're trying to win people. We're not just trying to win an argument. Right, and right. Real Christians have a genuine love for all people, including mm -hmm. people that are part of the gay community. We have friends, family member, colleagues that are part of the gay community. So our approach is to love them, care for them. But in doing that, to do that rightly, we have to have a commitment to sexual ethics that are coming from the standpoint of Christ. And so we try to help our readers navigate good conversations with people that they care about that are part of the gay community. Dr. Pat Sawyer, Dr. Neil Shenvey, my guest today here on The Bottom Line, the brand new book called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. And you do have, we were talking about the, the church's role in all this. Uh, one area where I also see it, and I, I, I'm still trying to figure out if it's kind of, uh, if these critical theories are kind of masquerading, if this kind of Marxism is showing up in evangelical elitism that is pointing the finger at Christian nationalism and saying, there's a danger over there, there's a danger over there. But I, it seems like the evangelical church in the United States and Western culture is really losing a lot of its inf influence. Uh, you address Protestant theology in this uh, new book, Critical Dilemma, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. 
lay it out for us. What? How is the church contributing to this? You you kind of alluded to this, Neil, about the fact that there are a lot of Protestant churches that are trying to be woke, if you will, and stay up on the current trend. I think you were right to say earlier that there are kind of two directions people take. Either they fully embrace wokeness or they totally, thoroughly reject it. Yeah. And we're very much in the anti-woke, quote unquote, camp. We're saying these ideas are bad. We also want to emphasize that we are sensitive to the underlying real problems. Yes. We talked about Christian nationalism. And I think it's a very nebulous term. What do you mean by that term? But there are truly racist people in the U.S., both black and white and Asian. There's, racism yeah. is not confined to any one ethnicity. But this is a real problem. And we can't pretend that it doesn't exist. So we're careful to say, hey, we are, are opposing these theories but we want to stick very close to, to what the Bible says about everything, whether it's ethnicity, identity, gender, sexuality. And so in our book, we also have you know 440 plus Bible references, whole block quotes to, to help Christians to ask, what does God say about these issues? Not what does my pol favorite political theory or right. political party say? What does right. God say? You're, so basically, you're encouraging uh, Christians to develop the spiritual gift of cognitive dissonance, it sounds yeah. like, you know, as, a, as opposed to blind allegiance, because uh, we, we, the blind allegiance doesn't help. And anybody, and I say this as a 40-year member of the media, anybody who just trusts the media to give you a headline or a meme, and that's where you're going to get all your theology from, uh, you're really missing the boat. I mean, you really owe it to yourself to read a book like what Dr. Shenvey and Dr. Sawyer have written called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice ideology, which is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Guys, we only have about 90 seconds left in our conversation here, unfortunately, because of the limits of broadcast time. And I don't want to ask you a question that requires a 10-minute answer. But uh, let me I, I, I'll, I'll turn the microphone over to you, as it were, Pat, Neil, if you would uh, just kind of give us a, a brief uh, synopsis of what your hope was, not only just in writing this and compiling it and, and having it done so that people can have an understanding, but then what about the application part? I would just say quickly that we hope what people will gain from this book. One of the primary things that they, that our readers will have discernment around these secular ideologies and mm -hmm. be able to see where there is a breakdown in terms of the Christian faith and Christian epistemology. And then at the same time, be sensitive about biblical justice and be making a both end, be concerned mm -hmm. about yes. these secular ideologies and critique them, but then also be about pushing back against racism, sexism, where it truly is in our culture. Mm -hmm. Amen. <laughs> and Neil has the final word on that. Dr. Neil Shenvey, Dr. Pat Sawyer, excellent book and the uh, the discussion uh, uh, guide that goes that goes along with it or is a separate purchase? It's free with it. Free with it. Okay, it comes along with. The book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Comprehensive, uh, compelling, but uh, e easy to put into practice uh, once you get past you know some of the uh, uh, the tougher parts that will stretch muscles in your spiritual uh, soul that you didn't know you had, uh, but uh, each of us needs to develop. Uh, Neil, Pat, great to get to meet you. Thank you for the work that you've done here and appreciate you being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that's how we concluded my conversation recorded earlier, actually late last week, with Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer. Uh, the book is called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideologies, Implications for the Church and Society. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy of this book that we're giving away today. 800-227-5278. 
is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, we have one copy of this outstanding book. Many of my kind of egghead academic friends were the ones who first introduced me to this one, and I'm sure glad that they did. It's called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideologies, Implications for the Church and Society. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about why this is such an important conversation for us to have, not just today, but every day, especially as we in the body of Christ are having to come to terms with the fact that so many people have so many different opinions about what social justice looks like, uh, whether it's the church's involvement in the foundation of our nation or where we in the body of Christ might be getting some of this wrong. We'll take a look at that coming up next as the bottom line continues. When you were in an accident, Stephanie Cover of Cover Law is the only personal injury attorney you need. Stephanie talks to victims all the time who wish they would have signed with her first. Unfortunately, once you've signed a retainer with a different attorney, Stephanie can't represent you. So it's crucial to have Stephanie's number handy now and make the smart call the first time. Stephanie is the right attorney to represent your personal injury claim, specifically because she worked for insurance companies for 20 years, so she knows the best questions to ask and when. Stephanie knows when things don't sound accurate, and she knows when she's being deceived. Stephanie is a Christian, and telling the truth is vital, so she holds professionals to that standard, too. Stephanie's unique blend of skill, expertise, and compassion get you real results. Bookmark Stephanie's website now so you don't have regrets and pass it on to your friends and relatives who will need it. Just go to kbrightradio.com slash cover today to set up a free consultation. That's kbrightradio.com slash C-O-V-E-R. Well, we have some good news from our friends at Preborn, and that is that we have a match in place that you've got to take advantage of right now. I call it the 15 by the 15th campaign. Uh, an anonymous listener uh, who listens to the Bottom Line Show here in Southern California has put up a match for Preborn. Uh, he, this listener has donated $15,000, which is the cost of one uh, ultrasound machine in a preborn clinic and said, hey, I'll put this up as a match. Let's get bother bottom line listeners involved to make donations, large or small. And once we get to another 15,000, then we can give the whole amount to preborn and get two uh, ultrasound machines in preborn clinics here in Southern California. So what do you say? We're a couple hundred dollars in on this match. I know there's a bottom line listener right now who can make a $500 or a $1,000 donation, maybe even a $2,500, knowing that it's A, tax deductible, and B, going to be matched dollar for dollar to get another ultrasound machine in that will save babies' lives. Call 833-850-BABY, 833-850-2229, or you can make a donation online. It's really easy. When you go to kbrightradio.com or you can go to my website rogermarsh.com and click on the preborn banner there let's save lives through preborn fifteen thousand dollars by the 15th of october we can do this my thanks again to dr pat sawyer and dr neil shenvey who are our guests for the past half hour here on the bottom line show discussing their powerful new book if you've ever wondered what is critical race theory or what is queer theory or what, what is all where is it coming from what does it all mean Uh, Dr. Shenvey and Dr. Sawyer have done a great job of putting it together from a biblical perspective. The book is called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideologies, Implications for the Church and Society. Now, we do have a copy of the book that we're giving away today, 800-227-5278. 
800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. The reason this is so important, take an, a, a, an event like today, for example, Columbus Day is the federal holiday. It's when we as uh, Americans recognize the guy who is recognized throughout history and has been as the guy who literally opened the world to the Americas. And of course, many people have said, well, why is it called Columbus Day? He didn't even actually make it to North America. He got stuck in the Bahamas, but he was able to go back to Spain, convince King Ferdinand and Princess Isabella, or Queen Isabella, rather, and the Catholic Church that he should be able to go. They funded his trip. He came back in 1493, and that's when the colonization of the, uh, the New World, as we call it, North America, uh, began. And it's interesting because a lot of Christians might fall into one of two camps. They'll say, hey, you know, it's really not fair. There were people here before you know, uh, Columbus. And so why do we get to come in here and say, well, we're Christians. And so therefore we get to have it. There is something called the doctrine of discovery that was popular in the Catholic church back in that, in the late 15th century. And, and that seemed to be what drove people, you know, toward these types of expeditions. It's interesting that 20 years later, Martin Luther, while a student at the uh, seminary in Wittenberg, said, hey, why are we doing this kind of stuff? And he was excommunicated from the church. So you can see that there's a kind of church tension there as well. But you can't go baby in bathwater here. I mean, there are people who would say, you know, the church is all wrong for endorsing this and we never should be here. We should give the land back. The other people are saying, wait, God ordained this for us. What God ordained for us is a style of government and a rule of law that said that our, our basically our laws come from him and not from mankind. How we meet that out in society is crucial. And I want to take a quick break here. And when we come back, for those who remain on the network, walk through this uh, doctrine of discovery and see why it can actually enhance our celebration of the discovery of the new worlds without uh, running over the people who kind of got run over by Europeans to make all this happen. Uh, for our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Rabbi Schneider coming up next. Uh, for those who remain, Columbus Day, perhaps a slightly different viewpoint than you're used to hearing. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, welcome to another edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and I really encourage you, go back to the podcast section of The Bottom Line Show, thebottomlineshow.com, or check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts, and listen to my conversation with Dr. Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer about their new book on critical race theory. It is important to read because they're not proponents of it, but in their book, Critical Dilemma, they look at the rise of critical theories. There are more than just one regarding race and social justice ideology and what are the implications for the church and society. We have to know this, we have to get it right. We can't just run and hide or change the channel when someone starts to bring this up because there is a movement afoot. And again, this is not because our country's at stake so much as because souls are at stake. Now, obviously, if hearts and minds and souls are transformed, that's gonna bode better for the country. But there's a very narrow definition of so-called Christian nationalism that has uh, kind of crept up among Christian elites. And that Christian nationalistic uh, mentality is uh, quick to point out that uh, if you put your country ahead of anything that God would have you do, you're really not a Christian. Well, um, I can make the case too. I'm not to play whataboutism here, but um, I, I would love to hear uh, the gospel proclaimed uh, through the elitist side of the Christian church with people who profess faith in Christ. Not just that here's what's wrong with everybody else. I'm smart and I know these things. That's kind of what we get. 
Today is a perfect day, I think, to have that conversation or to get into that dialogue because it is recognized as Columbus Day. Columbus Day is a national holiday in the United States. It's been a national holiday for quite some time. But um, the history of Columbus Day is kind of interesting because, uh, well, if you go back and track the, uh, the history of Columbus coming into, uh, coming into the, what is called the New World, you begin to find out that, hey, maybe, just maybe, Maybe we have been celebrating Columbus Day wrong, incorrectly. And that's not to say we shouldn't celebrate it, we shouldn't commemorate it, but why don't we take a look at what Columbus Day really is as opposed to what we want it to be. Now, you know what we want it to be. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And on October 12th, uh, 1892, uh, that's where he landed. He actually went ashore at Guahanini, which is an island in the Bahamas on October 12th, 1492. But that was kind of the opening of the door to the new world. He uh, was commissioned by, uh, he was commissioned by the Spanish government actually, even though he was a, uh, a resident of, of Italy, he was born in Italy. And it was uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain who financed this whole deal. So in 1492, Columbus bumps into the Bahamas, and there we go. But by 1493, he had gone back, and this is where the story gets a little dicey, and this is a part that a lot of Christians don't know. This is a part that I've only learned in recent years, and I'm an old codger. And that is, there was a connection between the church and Columbus and the monarchy, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. And there are a lot of people who will say, well, look, we believe that America was founded, the United States of America was founded because God ordained it, because God spoke into these founding fathers and the framers and, uh, and, and said, this is what I want and this is where you're supposed to be. And so they acknowledge you know, that we have these certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And, and I've had this dialogue with many a legal scholar over whether or not America is a Christian nation I think when you say Christian nation to a lot of people, they kind of think of it as a theocracy. Well, our laws are all based on the Bible. That's true. I mean, the, the good ones are. <laughs> the ones that benefit all people. The fact that we have a system of government is biblical. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that you can see in the United States that are biblical more so than any other nation in the world. But to call America a Christian nation would imply that everybody's living under the biblical worldview of life. And that's not true. I mean, a Christian nation would be a theocracy. Uh, much to the chagrin of some of my attorney friends who say, no, no, it's because we have a system of law. Our constitution is biblically based and therefore that makes us a Christian nation. Well, you know, there are other religions that have similar types of uh, belief systems that are in many cases have borrowed from scripture. But nonetheless, that's what they do. So establishing that America is not a theocracy and we do have religious liberty, and that's very, very good. It's very important to understand, first of all, why do we celebrate Columbus Day in the first place? In all honesty, the reason stems from a lot of Italian-Americans who began, well, the, it's, it starts back in 1792. The Society of St. Tammany, uh, or the Columbian Order, Columbus, uh, celebrated the 300th anniversary of his landing. They did so in New York City on, on October 12th, 1792. They also did again on the 400th anniversary in 1892, and uh, then that became a presidential proclamation nationwide. During the latter half of the 19th century, 
Um, if there was a city that had a large number of Italian Americans, they took great pride in the fact that an Italian was credited with discovering America. Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued a presidential proclamation in 1937 that established it as a national holiday. And this is where it gets interesting. Please know that the reason Christopher Columbus has been revered and honored in our country is because Italian-Americans back in the 18th century, the 19th century, kept the story going kept the legacy going, the legend of Christopher Columbus and how he uh, sailed the ocean blue and wound up in the Bahamas, which was the gateway to the new world, came back in 1493, and here we go. I mean, by the time 1620 rolls around, we're having the story of Thanksgiving. In the 1700s, uh, we've got American colonies and we've, from Britain, and we've got slaves. Interesting that the Spanish didn't really have too much of a toehold on the new world as far as the U.S. goes, uh, though there was some influence in Mexico, of course. And then there was a French influence because it was in 1803 that Louisiana was purchased from the French government in what we call the Louisiana Purchase. And that was not Spanish and that was not English, that was French. So the U.S. was really kind of a, a melting pot. But over the years, it's, you know, so Columbus Day has been a national holiday, let's see, for 70, uh, almost 80 years, right? Almost 90 years. It'll be 90 years in 2027. There are many people who think of this as a national holiday that's been a national holiday ever since 1492. But there's a big gap, you know, in the timing. From 1492 and 1493 to then the Italian societies in New York City saying we want to hold a commemorate the 300th anniversary. Don't see a whole lot that was written about the parties, the celebrations that may have happened here in the 300 years prior to the tricentennial. And then the quadcentennial in, in 1892. And then, I mean, that was a presidential proclamation and then it was a presidential proclamation that made Columbus Day a national holiday. So when people start jumping up and down about, well, we should call it Indigenous Peoples Day or why do we celebrate Columbus Day? Let's be very clear about the fact that Christopher Columbus did lead an expedition that was bound to try to find the new world. They were financed by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. They went in 1492, discovered the Bahamas and said, well, we can get to there's more around here. This is just one of many. And then it gets interesting because by the time 1493 rolled around, now you're beginning to see the influence of the church. And when I say the church, remember who the church was in 1493. The church in 1493 was the Catholic church. And there's a lot of misinformation about what the Catholic church did and didn't do all the way back in the dark ages. I mean, when you think about it, um, with, with the spread of Islam, for example, we hear a lot about the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades. And oftentimes that's depicted as Catholics on the warpath going after anybody who wasn't a Christian. Well, that's not entirely true. If you listen, Bill Federer at American Minute has some phenomenal teaching on the history of Islam, the creation, you know, Muhammad and all that ascension. And basically what you had in the 7th and 8th century was not necessarily Catholics on the warpath, but rather Catholics on the defensive fighting off attacks. One of the tenets of the Quran is death to the infidel. And so anyone that anybody who was practicing the Islamic faith, uh, when you went to go settle an area, you had to uh, you know, basically take up arms. It's part of Islamic religion 
that anybody who stands in the way of you expanding the gospel, if you will, the good news about Muhammad, uh, should be put to death. And we hear that and we shudder and say, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, why would anybody do that? that? That's just absolutely nuts. Well, what if I told you that the church, the body of Christ that you and I uh, purport to be a part of also has a similar history that may have been ripped out of a Muslim playbook? I'm going to take a look at that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Columbus Day edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh in some parts of the country. Well, Columbus Day is a national holiday. It went from being October 12th to now the second Monday in the month of October. And there's a little bit of politicking that went on with that. I mean, the the holiday became a holiday based on the fact that a lot of Italian-Americans in New York City were celebrating it. And, you know, when they're celebrating it, they want to take the day off from work. (laughs) There was a lot of that. Remember, we just went through this with the history of Labor Day. It wasn't until 1937 that FDR proclaimed presidential proclamation that Columbus Day should be a national holiday. So many cities in America that had large uh, populations of Italian-Americans were celebrating it, so they decided to make it a national holiday. By 1972, I mean, we went from celebrating on October the 12th to making it the second Monday of October. And it's interesting because this was always one of those holidays. Veterans Day, too, was for me as well when I was younger. I could never tell, is this the day the banks closed? Are we going to get mail today? (laughs) You know, federal holiday should mean banking holiday and that type of stuff too. But uh, I don't know. It seems to me, maybe here in the People's Republic, we didn't always recognize it, but maybe we did. So nonetheless, by uh, the quincentennial of 1992, um, the tone had changed a little bit. 1792, the tricentennial, the Society of Tammany, the Columbian Order, uh, were discussing how valuable Christopher Columbus was to the discovery of the new world, especially North America, a brand new nation in 1792. And then in 1892, the quadcentennial, by then more and more cities were celebrating it. But by 1992, a lot of people were pushing back on Columbus Day. They, uh, the, the idea that Christopher Columbus came and basically led to the ransacking of what is now known as uh, North America and specifically the United States was a little appalling to some people. Now, please hear me out when I say this. There are some spiritual realities about the formation of America. There are some physical realities about the formation of America. The spiritual realities, I think most Christians are pretty familiar with. The idea that the founding fathers, the colonies had been in operation for a while, 
there was kind of rough and wild, you know, uh, goings on. France had their little bit in the southeast. The northeast was the English, the British colonies, and they were considering um, basically breaking away. And then in the west, you had the Mexican settlements, and and then of course the French also had uh, lay hold of uh, claims in Canada, in North America. So uh, you, you had a lot of that going on. But, you know, Columbus Day had been a holiday 1937 to 1992. What is that? 45 years. Not that much. And all of a sudden, people begin to say, well, wait a minute. Why are we celebrating Columbus? First of all, he didn't even really land here. He's not really the guy who discovered. He discovered those islands and land masses known as the New World. And what about the people who were here? Now, that's a whole separate conversation. I usually say that when that comes up. But the idea that there were Norsemen who came in from you know the Viking areas of the colder parts and could literally get across into the New World, it was the easiest way to get there, is that whole Bering Strait thing and you know that four miles of gap that would, would have seemed like a taking eternity to, to actually pass. But nonetheless, it was done. The idea that you know Columbus showed up and there were a few friendly Indians hanging around, Native Americans, and everybody got along, peace, love, and happiness. I mean, the, 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 the Native American culture was pretty savage. And then the Europeans showed up, and it was kind of savagery against savagery. And, um, I mean, it, it would be wonderful to think that a bunch of peaceful Native Americans hanging out going, hey, what's going on? Yeah, we're from Spain. Oh, really? That's cool. Uh, come on, let's hang out. Want to smoke a pipe? Yeah, sure. I'm sitting at the TP. That's really neat. Uh, what do you guys have for dinner? Well, we'll cook this and you cook this. And hey, well, I'll just get along. Wouldn't that be a wonderful narrative? But you know it wasn't. I mean, you do realize that you have conquering heroes who showed up and were in a big hurry to establish something new. And this is where the church can take a look at church history and, you know, and say, well, not every Christian condoned slavery. Not every Christian condoned violence and this, that, and the other thing. You know, the, the Puritans came for religious freedom over from England, and, you know, they were willing to live peacefully with the other people who were there. But there's something I've really recently come in contact with um, from a group that is a, uh, it's a, the group is called PRII, excuse me, PRRI. And this is an organization that uh, focuses on uh, religious liberty and religious, uh, well, the religious history as it pertains to the U.S. There are a lot more books that have been written recently on the subject of uh, uh, you know, racism. Public Religion Research Institute, Robert P. Jones, he's the founder and president of the group. And this is a guy who writes regularly on politics, um, has a PhD in religion from Emory University, has an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, it basically delved into the whole uh, concept of white supremacy, especially as it pertains to the church. He's written a new book that's really comprehensive and very thorough and 400 pages long called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Now, one thing I will give, I mean, he's the darling of the left. He's on NPR and PBS and CNN and stuff like that. I mean, everyone that has an ax to grind with the church and likes to see the church kind of in this compromised position um, will uh, it, it'll kind of make you scratch your head a little bit. But the idea that he's saying, hey, look, why don't we take a look at some of the, uh, some of the, uh, the industries that we see that are church-based or professing faith in Christ. 
and see what role the church played in history. Because she could look at the, uh, the, the Protestant church, the evangelical church, and say, well, no, that wasn't part of that at all. But remember, the church in 1493 was the Catholic church. And in addition for, to Columbus getting uh, King Ferdinand and, Prince, and Queen Isabella to bankroll uh, his journey, you also had the Vatican playing a big part in this as well and sending with Christopher Columbus something called the Doctrine of Discovery. Now, I have to admit, been Christian most of my life, been in church my whole life, been around a lot of evangelical circles, had never heard of this until Dr. Robert Jones brought it to my attention, not personally, but in books. And he writes about it in his new book. And I, I will give you a couple of highlights. These are some of the pull quotes from the book with regard to the uh, doctrine of discovery. In short, what the doctrine of discovery did was it was a note from the Vatican. It was an official document that basically gave explorers like Christopher Columbus the right to go onto new lands, and if there were any people who were there, living there, basically, this is the, the crazy part. We talk so much about how Islam borrows from Christianity and then turns it on its head and makes Muhammad the star and Mecca the goal. Well, in this case, this looks like the Catholic Church adopted a policy that has more of a Islamic feel to it. The Doctrine of Discovery basically gave, deputized, if you will, the explorer to go onto whatever lands they were going to explore to offer the people who live there the opportunity to become Christians. And if they chose not to become Christians, you should subdue them. So basically, I mean, for, for you can put two and two together. You can see how somebody who said, I am a member of the the body of Christ. I'm a Catholic, I'm a good, well, good Christian, they would say back in the day. And because of the doctrine of discovery, I could take my European family into Africa. And if there's a slave trade going on there, I mean, basically you're, you want to get as many slaves as you can, right? And go conquer new lands. And one writer said, they actually approach this with missionary, with the zeal of Christian missionaries. Now, you and I can hear that and say, that's absolutely wrong. But how many people did it? I mean, we can see that it's wrong, but we can also acknowledge that this was something that was done in the church. This doctrine of discovery literally has not been on the radar of most scholars and theologians in the Anglo community. Now, if you're an indigenous people or you're from a minority group, You've been talking about the so-called Christian roots of what basically amounts to white supremacy. I'm from Spain, I'm from Italy, I'm from the church, and basically, if you don't become a Christian, God told me to kill you. Now, not everybody practiced that. There were a lot of great, solid Christian men and women who were part of the colonial expansion in the United States. Who They were abolitionists. They were looking at uh, having everyone basically benefit from these certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator. But here's the thing. When you, when you take a look at this doctrine of discovery, that basically was the work of the Vatican, it makes it a little easier to understand why how just a scant 20 years later, Martin Luther was asking questions of the Catholic Church. I mean, the timing with the establishment of the printing press, 
the uh, Martin Luther uh, coming up with his 95 theses and this doctrine of discovery, it's kind of a perfect trifecta for how the church wound up splintering into the church, 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 everywhere you go. We'll take a quick break and when we come back, I'd love to uh, just get some final thoughts to share with you with regard to the doctrine of discovery, our faith in Christ, and is America a truly Christian nation? We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Preborn is saving lives by doing what the left doesn't want you to know about. Progressives don't want you to know that a baby, once conceived in the womb, is a human being. And the proof that we have is four-dimensional ultrasound technology that you can get for free at Preborn. The reason Preborn can offer these ultrasound appointments is because people like you make donations and uh, they're tax deductible, and they provide not only the necessary appointments for the expected moms, but also making large donations that will provide ultrasound machines for each of these organizations as well. 833-850-BABY is the number to call. It's really easy to remember. 833-850-BABY, or if you want to do the numbers, it's 833-850-2229. Your $28 donation right now will save one baby's life. Uh, $140 donation does five, 280 does 10. You can also give a recurring monthly gift like Lisa and I do, maybe $28 a month or $56 a month, $100 a month, whatever you and God decide. Make your best donation today and please know it's completely tax deductible and every dollar you donate to Preborn goes to the ultrasounds. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-2229 or go online to kbrightradio.com and click the Preborn banner today. Welcome back to this special Columbus Day edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Martian, taking a look at the holiday as it pertains to the uh, um, our faith in Christ. And also a, a reminder, check out Dr. Neil Shenvey's book, along with Dr. Pat Sawyer, called Critical Dilemma. It looks at the rise of critical theories and social justice ideologies, uh, implications for the church and society. And uh, we've got it linked at thebottomlineshow.com. It's a comprehensive look at why these movements, whether it be queer theory or critical race theory or whatever, are so popular among progressives and what the church needs to do to uh, stand up to them and against them with biblical truth. But those who would say, well, wait a minute, Christians are the reasons we're in this situation in the first place would look at this doctrine of discovery, which the Anglo community doesn't talk about a lot, but has been rather popular in minority groups that asks the question, is America a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians, or is America a pluralistic democracy where all stand on equal footing before the law? Most Americans embrace the latter, but there are more. This is, it's interesting because this is a poll quote from a book that I think is very subjective. Uh, a, a desperate, defensive, mostly white Christian minority clings to the former. Well, if you're talking about, if you are talking about America as a promised land for European Christians, the plan was not to establish a home for Christians that would only be Christian. That, that's leftist ideology poured into this. If it's people who are looking for religious liberty and religious freedom, look at all the way through the Constitution. I mean, the, the First Amendment gives us the, you know, that, that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is all enshrined there, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. I mean, th that doesn't say freedom to do all that if you're white. Now, understanding, of course, that America was founded with slavery, written into our laws, and it's taken a while for American laws to come around and you know meet up with modern times. 
But if you look at the spirit of the law and the faith of people who are truly Christian in this country, you won't see people who are saying, I want America to be the way I like it because it was white and Christian and uh, that benefited me. That's looking at people's experiences and saying, hey, but if that wasn't your experience, if you grew up in an area where you were refused service and couldn't go to college and all those types of things, those are real too. So here's the cognitive dissonance that we can wander in on Columbus Day. Basically, we can celebrate the fact that Christopher Columbus did in fact discover the new world in 1492, that the Catholic Church set a nasty precedent in 1493, got to own that. But then when people say, well, what about Indigenous Peoples Day? Well, we can commemorate the people who are here as well. But what's the end game? Is the end game to get American history so right that we lose sight of one of the basic tenets of our Christian heritage, and that is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness? Those three markers, life means everybody has the right to live, which meant slavery should have gone sideways. Liberty, which means you have the choice of pursuing what you think is right for you. And then the pursuit of happiness, because it makes you happy. As Christians, we can embrace parts of history that we never knew. We can ask for forgiveness for those who have taken Christian ideas and ideals and misconstrued them to the point where uh, people have been wronged and hurt and in some cases even lost their lives. But today of all days, may we be a people who know our nation's history, but understand that ultimately we don't take our orders from the king or queen of Spain or from an Italian explorer or from Native Americans who were here before those folks even showed up. We take our marching orders from our Heavenly Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love as he loved, sacrificially and servantsly, and we hate what he hates. Anything that has to do with evil and miscarriages of justice. So that's the good news, and that's the bottom line.